0: Eko irirangi o Hello, I'm Simon Morris. When Donald Trump was elected president four years ago, cockeyed optimists looking for a silver lining shrugged and said, Well, at least he's the final baby boomer in the White House. But like so many predictions by people trying to write off that generation, it proved premature. Those darn boomers just don't seem to want to quit, especially at the movies. When did you write that? I didn't write it. Paul McCartney wrote it. The Beatles. Who? John, Paul, George and Ringo, the Beatles. The Beatles and Queen, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Spike Lee and Ridley Scott, Judy Dench, Maggie Smith and Michael Caine and, of course, Clint Eastwood, who's older than all of them. Family's the most important thing. Don't do what I did. I put work in front of family. So why is my generation not only so keen to keep working but still so bankable at the box office? Well, partly it's because that generation still likes going to the movies. And if they're going, they'd like to see a story they can relate to. I was going to ask if it would be possible not to use my real name when you write the story. What about Anne Boleyn? That's a lovely name. oh, somebody had that? We're going to have to use your real name for the the studios have belatedly realized this and are dishing out what they think the so called golden ages want to see with mixed results. The most depressing is what's happened to the man that most baby boomers consider to be the best screen actor of his generation, Robert De Niro. So let me get this straight. You want me to help you and your buddies, to help beat up your grandson and his buddies because the two of you can't figure out some way to live in the same house? Well, when you put it like that, I'm in. Bobby's never bad, even in fluff like The War with Grandpa. But he can't seem to say no, particularly when there's a serious paycheck attached. I mean, it's unlikely Dame Judy Dench would have agreed to be in Meet the Fockers, The Intern or Dirty Grandpa. I don't even know how much I appreciate you doing this. Did just get naked? That's the best way to sleep. Oh, my God! <laughs> I want you to tear open my bra like it's a social security check. Now fumble around and pretend like you're trying to find your glasses. I found them. I can see. Well aside from the grandpafication of Robert De Niro there seem to be a limited number of projects Hollywood can dream up for baby boomers. One of which is music. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. Elton. But that's my name. Yeah I know you can be the best-selling artist in America if you desire. I was trying to do something bold. Why is you sell something flashy? One thing boomers pride themselves on is their music, and you can't beat a good biopic about their favourites. Elton John, James Brown, Johnny Cash, and this week a concert movie from former Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. Coincidentally, the film of Burns' Broadway show American Utopia comes out at the same time as the documentary about local favourites 660, Till the Lights Go Out. Meanwhile, there are two other films aimed at an older audience, Robert De Niro inevitably in another wacky comedy, The Comeback Trail, and the more restrained Diane Lane and Kevin Costner in the modern western Let Him Go. I'm sorry. Sorry? Why? I made you sad. That's. it's not what I wanted. You didn't make me sad, George. But first, two complementary approaches to rock and roll stardom on Broadway and in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It's just six sixty and the choir of fifty thousand strong. I think we're ready, aren't we? We're ready. It's almost impossible to overstate quite how popular the five piece band 660 got over the past 10 years, with seemingly very little help from anyone else. The critics almost universally hated them, calling them bland, derivative, and untalented. The main beef seemed to be 660 just weren't rock and roll enough. In beginning, it was me, Hwani, Eli, and Jai. So we came up with 3MG, which is three Maoris and ginger. But we knew that it's really not a name we could call ourselves. You are experiencing life and growing. University, it's work hard, play hard. There's a camaraderie down there that sticks with you. <laughs> met on the rugby field for goodness sake and worse, they were popular straight out of the gate. Long before their string of hit recordings, they built up an audience of thousands by simply giving the New Zealand public exactly what it loves. It really has into something that's unseen in Aotearoa New Zealand. They weren't on the radio, they weren't on the TV, this band that no one had ever heard of, but people had a perception they would never take on the world. Traditionally, future rock stars are outsiders at school, the freaks, geeks and weirdos who band together and create extraordinary new music. But as far as I can see, 660 reflect everyone else at school, the first 15 and their supporters, the girls and boys who go out every weekend, people who don't know much about music but know what they like. Feedback was very negative. These songs are not good. These lyrics are ludicrous. People just like to bring you down just because. We went from being friends to being competitors. I don't know if I'm good enough, you know what I mean? The movie, Till the Lights Go Out, directed by Julia Parnell, captures all of this perfectly. If you love 660, you'll love it. You might even be in it. If you can't stand them, there's nothing for you here. But if you know nothing about them and on the evidence offered can see no reason why they got as big as they did, it's an education. When we're on stage, we trust each other. There's something undeniable. What do you do when you're the biggest band in a country of five million people? What more can be done? What other boundaries can be pushed? What is the next step? This isn't a band that's successful like Split Ends or Lord or even Fat Freddy's Drop. 660 is successful in the same way and with the same people as the All Blacks, the Silver Ferns and Team New Zealand. Rugged people like 660. The conservative people like 660. The gangsters like 660. In sharp contrast is the critics' favourite worldwide, David Byrne. The former frontman songwriter for the ultimate 80s outsiders, Talking Heads, put together a solo show with a difference. It was as much musical theatre as it was rock concert, American Utopia. What if we could eliminate everything from the stage? except the stuff we care about the most. Without cables or wires, what would be left? Well, it would be us. And you. And that's what the show is. The show was filmed by, of all people, Spike Lee, not a director you automatically associate with a Broadway musical. David Byrne opens the show on a bare stage and one by one, song by song, his band and singers join him. And since there are none of the traditional trappings of a rock show, drum kits, racks of keyboards or microphones, the 12-piece band have to bring everything on with them. This is one of the reasons there are at least four or five percussionists on stage at any one time. It's all singing, all dancing, and because it's David Byrne, a certain amount of intellectual leisure de main along the way. James Baldwin said, I still believe that we can do with this country something that has not been done before. American Utopia is also a tribute to the power of live performance, live theatre performance rather than traditional rock and roll or traditional movies, for that matter. And because the show is live in front of an enthusiastic New York audience, you're expected to marvel at the staging and the dancing as much as the undeniably great singing and playing by the band. And Spike Lee and David Byrne turn out to be a surprisingly simpatico partnership. As people, we're a work in progress. Who we are, it extends beyond ourselves. There are a lot of interesting new songs, but it's the old Talking Head's classics that create the emotional highlights. Burning Down the House, Road to Nowhere, and Once in a Lifetime, almost the same as it ever was. but American Utopia was designed to see live in person. On film, particularly in the close-ups, you're a little too aware of how slick the choreography is and how much rehearsal went into each set piece. Film and theatre are often about getting the moments perfect, but rock and roll is about imperfection, the happy accidents and inspiration in the moment. What's happened, and despite all that's still happening, there's still possibility. It was useful to compare American Utopia, tribute to outsider talent, with Till the Lights Go Out, tribute to the taste of a mainstream audience. See them both and get an unexpected insight into what drives democracy. To the connections between all of us. Let Him Go is old school filmmaking in the best sense. It's based on a not particularly well-known novel adapted by the director Thomas Bazooka, best known, if at all, for writing a quaint little film called the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. But it stars two genuine and attractive movie stars supported by a big deal English stage and TV actress. Are they here or not? You always like that in a big old hurry? My husband likes to get down to business. Mm. Hell of a lot of men are like that. Can't wait to get where they're going. Diane Lane and Kevin Costner play Margaret and George. He's a retired sheriff. She's a former horse wrangler. Now they're doting grandparents until tragedy strikes. Their son dies suddenly, and three years later his widow Lorna remarries, a shifty-looking man called Donnie Weeboy. I saw exactly what I've always felt about Donnie, Weeboy, And I saw that girl can't protect her child. Margaret Jimmy is her boy. He's your grandson. Margaret is horrified to witness Donnie mistreating both baby Jimmy and Lorna. And shortly afterwards, the family upsticks and takes off without any warning. Margaret decides Lorna and Jimmy need rescuing and George decides to go with her to keep her out of trouble. We're trying to locate a Donnie wee boy. He married our son's widow. Got our grandson with him. You let it be known you're looking for a wee boy. I'll find you. They reach the Dakotas and make inquiries, Margaret pretending it's a casual visit, George impatiently cutting to the chase. And finally, they find Donnie's bluff uncle, Bill, who's clearly been tracking them ever since they arrived in the state. We thought we'd see Jimmy, since we are in the neighbourhood since you're in the neighborhood. Go careful. Where in the hell are we? Bill drives them way out of town to the wee boy homestead where they meet the real boss of the family, Blanche, played by Leslie Manville. Leslie's hardly known for her work in American Westerns. She's just been announced as the next Princess Margaret in The Crown. But here, she effortlessly channels tough Western ladies like Betty Davis or Barbara Stanwyck. We came to see our grandson. My boy doesn't have to answer to you. And we don't have to answer to you. ooh <laughs> <laughs> The air of menace from the family is palpable. Margaret and George are determined to rescue their son's family, but it goes wrong and it gets even worse as it goes along. The wee boys are not inclined to let go of what's now theirs. You're with me on this, right? right behind you. He hit Lorna. You hit your wife? Like... Let Him Go is one of those stories that rests entirely on how much we want to go with the two leads, and the parts of Margaret and George couldn't be in better hands. Kevin Costner may have just the one thing he does, rugged decency, but then so did John Wayne, Gary Cooper and Jimmy Stewart before him. This one that I married but can't figure. doesn't believe there's any world but this one. still believes a horse has got a soul somehow. A for me and producer star Costner is savvy enough to know that this is very much Diane Lane's movie, she's the decent grandma who'll do anything for her family butting heads with Blanche, her evil twin, I like Diane Lane in anything anyway, but it's nice to see what she does with a part that could have been a little one note Jimmy needs his mother you could have used one too I could have been that to you. I should have been. But I wasn't. Like all Westerns, there comes a moment when George and Margaret realise they're not going to get any help from the authorities. The wee boys own the town, they're armed to the teeth, and there's nothing any strangers can do about it. Pack up your stuff and get out of town. Come with us. No. He'd kill me. Him and his mother. Your grandson. He's a wee boy now. Well, nobody tells Diane Lane and Kevin Costner what to do, not in their own movie. Needless to say, there will be blood, and Let Him Go is a reminder of how much fun a well-made, well-acted Western can be. Don't start what you can't finish. Stop me if you've heard this one. An unscrupulous movie producer keeps trying to make his terrible movies on the off chance that one of them will be a hit. And then he discovers a way to make more money out of a bad movie. I know, I can hear you. Stop, stop, you're saying. Isn't this the plot of The Producers or Bowfinger or Get Shorty or any one of a dozen films about low-rent Hollywood? It was certainly the basis of the original Comeback Trail. I'm not an idiot. You haven't painted the most accurate portrait of our investor. All right! We've been in trouble before. We always find a way out. The Comeback Trail was a long-forgotten 1982 comedy made by one Harry Hurwitz, a fringe figure not dissimilar to the lead in this story. Why Robert De Niro decided to remake this is a Hollywood mystery, but let's go with it. You're lying. I I swear to you, I'm not lying. Well, okay, I'm lying a little bit, but I'm a producer. That's what I do. And I will have your money in full. I promise you. you got 72 hours. After that, I choke you to death. It's Hollywood, 1974. Max De Niro owes money to gangster Reggie. Morgan Freeman clearly delighted to play bad for a change. Max and his mandatory hapless offside,er Walter, played by Zach Braff, visit a more successful producer who's currently shooting a blockbuster starring movie star Frank Pierce. It's all over the street. You need money. Why don't you guys come by the set? Frank Pierce is going to be there. Excuse huh? me, Mr. Pierce. I'm so sorry to bother you. Can I get your <laughs> There's an accident, Frank falls off a building, but the production has a major payday because he was heavily insured. So Max has an idea. Why shouldn't he do the same thing? All he needs is an old actor who's lost the will to live, someone like ex-Cowboy star Duke Montana. Look, I got a scam. What do you mean a scam? We make it look like we're actually going to be putting together a movie. We heavily insured a star will do his own stunts. you Duke Montana? Yeah, that's Duke Montana. What are you doing, Duke Montana? Come on, daily game. I'm rushing that. You are perfect for this particular part. It's Tommy Lee Jones, who, like the other big names in the comeback trail, seem to have been flim-flammed into signing up on the strength of De Niro's name and reputation. Did none of them see Dirty Grandpa? What kind of a human being are you? Well, I'm a producer. <laughs> How is it a guy making a million-dollar movie don't have a better car? I don't believe in ostentatious flamboyance. What, are you stupid? No! So, the fake movie has a star. Now all it needs is a script with lots of risky stunts in it and a director inexperienced enough to not realise what's going on. I'm not sure that keen young Megan is a particularly likely choice back in 1974, but what is this? An important motion picture dripping with authenticity. I really connected to the story. Uh-huh. Yeah, but Duke is like a western. You know, it's very masculine. Congratulations. Hardly. In fact, there are several moments during the comeback trail where you wonder if either the scriptwriter or the director have ever seen a movie being shot before. In fact, they are one and the same person George Gallo, who actually wrote one of De Niro's first and best comedies, Midnight Run, back in 1988. Tanner, if he were alive right now, I know he would be saying... Where's that damn horse at? Duke, my my God, you're alive. But since then, Gallo's career has had its ups and downs. Hits like Bad Boys, flops like Codename the Cleaner and Sea Spot Run. And I'm afraid the comeback trail, belying its title, is unlikely to do Gallo's reputation many favours, or anyone else's for that matter. To give the film its due, it's harmless enough. It's just a terrible waste of a good cast. Wacky comedy has never been Tommy Lee Jones's happy place, and he covers his discomfort with an awful lot of whiskers you don't know this guy he's got like nine lives it's not that hard to kill somebody we're shooting this fantastic roper scene it's gonna be a real killer if it for you i'd be six foot under up on booth here right now Morgan Freeman and Zach Braff, the only actual comedian in the cast, both do what it says in the script and leave it up to De Niro to do any heavy lifting, which he does with joyless enthusiasm. What they think they're making is elusive, possibly a cross between a Mel Brooks comedy and an Elmore Leonard crime caper. I'm going to let you down. These people are ready to die for you. That's the best choice of words. But it's a remake of a film that didn't need making in the first place directed by an uninspired hack and frankly a waste of everyone's time including the, I promise I'm not joking, 40 producers brought in to make a film about a terrible producer. Back in Hollywood 1974, they used to describe a film like The Comeback Trail as strictly from hunger. I just can't believe any of the people on this film were that hungry. So, on a polite no thanks, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.